it's it's really story wise. I think it's pretty pretty straightforward and engaging. But um, Summer Sam is because I because I know I'm sure a lot of people know this, but how Spike got into filmmaking was um, when he came home one summer. It was the summer of all the of, of the big blackout here in New York in the seventies. I believe it was seventy seven, seventy eight. It might have been seventy seven. And he came home from uh, Morehouse and his friend who was a lawyer had an eight millimeter camera in a box with some film and she wasn't using it. And she and Spike asked her about it. And he was a communications major at Morehouse um, or what would be today's version of a communications major at Morehouse. And he um, asked her about the camera. And she said, well, I'm not using it. You can have it. And she gave him the camera and he shot the blackout. See, I like it a lot better now that I've recently rewatched it. Um, and it's not because of the story, because I think the story is lacking. Um, because this is another example of where I was a little bit lost on what he was trying to say or like what the point of the movie was. Um, but it is really wonderfully shot and the performances are so engaging that I can't hate on it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by. We are still in our month of Spike Lee, and today we are going to take a look at Summer of Sam and 25th Hour. So, Mike, we're going to jump right into Summer of Sam, one of your favorite movies of all time from maybe the greatest movie year of all time, 1999. You covered it on your other podcast, 99 from 99. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of 99s. So, Mike, what is your brand new take on Summer of Sam? The challenge has been, the gauntlet's been thrown. Give us a new I take. should just uh, have you re-download the episode and you cut around your side of it with what I said there, which could be awkward, right? Because I, I don't know, but we, we would actually put to the test whether we have natural chemistry or if you could just put in my side talking to a completely different <laughs> human and it work out just fine. I don't think, I don't think it, it would work. Would. I don't know, man. <laughs> you and no, Ben have a, movie a podcast. different, you have a different dynamic than you and me, I think. That is true. (laughs) I don't really know which direction to take that. It's not good or bad. Just different. It's okay. Um, A new um, point of emphasis. Well, okay. Uh, I did mention in our four little girls uh, conversation that that had kind of come up on uh, that particular show. My hatred of true crime. Uh, which is strange because I think that most of the criticism and one that I shared when I watched this as a teenager way back in 1999 is like, Hey, I thought this was going to be a movie about a serial killer. Mm -hmm. What's with all this sex shit? What's going on with the hairdresser and his like mental breakdown that he's going through, which to be fair is, uh, you know, it's influenced by the fact that his neighborhood and possibly him are being stalked by this maniac. Mm -hmm. So that is a contributing factor, but probably not as much as what the trailers and the marketing would have led you to believe where it's like uh, this fictionalized version of historical events where you may think I've mentioned once upon a time in Hollywood uh, where you're going to go in and see John Leguizamo and Adrian Brody as a man trying to affect a British punk persona uh, (laughs) somehow are stalked (laughs) or help defeat uh, the son of Sam killer not that at all. So last episode I expressed, um, I guess some surprise, uh, even, you know, two decades later that he got game was not a hit. This one, I totally understand why it was like seen as a misfire and was rejected by audiences because I'm part of the problem. I don't think I really got it as a teenager, but as an old, old man, I totally get uh, the anxieties of John Leguizamo, hairdresser and sex maniac. Me and him are on the same page. Basically the same. Exactly. (laughs) This is a movie I saw in 1999 when it first came out. And similar to you, I had a really negative reaction to it. 
Uh, because as I remember, a lot of the advertisements were like, oh, it's a bit, it's about Son of Sam. That was like the big pull. So I think some of this is the fault of like whatever studio had control. I don't know how much Spike Lee had control of like how this movie was marketed, but it was marketed really poorly. And they led, they led you to believe that it was this about was a Disney picture, my friend. This see? was back when Disney made uh, cinema. This is upsetting. <laughs> Actual I didn't know cinema. that. And now I'm really sad because, um, because <laughs> I didn't like it then. Uh, but then I revisited it maybe. I don't know, five or six years later. And I was like, I don't know what it was like. This is great. This is fun. This is maybe Adrian Brody's best performance. I really, I really like his performance here. I think Leguizamo is really good. Although, you know, a little cultural appropriation. You got Leguizamo playing in Italian, but that's okay. I think he does really well here. Um, and it's just, there's a lot of one, I guess, kind of recurring theme you see in Spike Lee's work is like this, the heat of New York and it driving people to go crazy and to just act out because you have a little bit of that in do the right thing as well. Um, but I think like, this is kind of all the performances are kind of pitch perfect. I really like Mira Sorvino here too. Uh, it's a shame that like, she's just kind of been relegated to the outskirts of Hollywood at this point. Cause I think I'm trying to remember if this or cause she did a Woody Allen movie. Uh, God, what was that called? Mighty Aphrodite. Um, that she was she also won. really yeah, good best supporting Yeah, she won best actress for. Yeah. So she was really uh, I good. I would say I mean, she is a direct, um, you know, that's a direct professional result of not involving herself with uh, Harvey Weinstein. I'm mm, pretty sure right. she's the actress You're that right. Peter Jackson inquired about to cast yep. in Lord of the Rings. That's correct. And she was labeled as difficult by him, um, which – to Peter Jackson's credit, he sort of apologized for ever like just just ever taking someone at their word. Like, oh, okay, difficult to work with. I guess we'll go down the list to someone else. Uh, yes, she is really good here, and also probably um, this is something I don't think uh, my co-host, the Nine Nine from Nine Nine, said this, but <laughs> I know he's and we will never gain a listener now. He has said this about Chris Klein that he thinks that Chris Klein has been. <laughs> unfairly his, maligned his affection for Chris Klein is the strangest it's the strangest plot it's, twist in that show I do it not is about it. as troubling as uh, this guy talking to a dog or taking orders from a dog in this film I would argue uh, his more defense troubling. of Chris Klein <laughs> but to my point uh, is that I do think that Mir Servino like Chris Klein became famous for playing a dumb character in Mighty Aphrodite, and I think she was sort of relegated to being like sort of like a pretty airhead. Uh, thankfully, in this film, uh, she's not that at all. I mean, she's very attractive. You can't move around that. Right. But no, she is not played as dumb in the slightest. And on rewatch, because I actually did rewatch this uh, for this little show of ours, uh, even though it is you know on 99 from 99, uh, She's on top of John Leguizamo and his bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much from the first the first scene, the first time we're aware that he is stepping out on her, she also quickly is aware. Well, she's got a good uh, sense of, of smell, kind of, apparently, so she was aware. Well, you know, <laughs> I was about to say in kind of a crude manner, and uh, Dave just, just went there. I'll this show is you the, the you know, I, I guess you know when I just out you and your your knowledge of uh, porn stars, you decided to just play up that part <laughs> in our right. previous episode. Right. So, um, yeah, there there are a lot of good performances uh, here, and I think it's probably not contributed well to the the film's sort of uh, legacy uh, or lasting impact because, like Wasamo, Brody, Sorvino, like these are not people that really are above the title kind of stars mm, that's true. and they're like it looked like actors. brody I mean, was for... going that direction but just kind of like went sideways somewhere like he won, he well, won his just Oscar being an idiot and... on his own <laughs> yeah just not working out for him at all i do this yeah, is this uh, molesting is totally... a woman on, at the oscars that doesn't age well Jesus, yeah <laughs> one thing that like this is not really you know that important or connected to anything but i do wonder about spike lee's weird connection to uh, musical theater stars, because there's two of them in this movie. Patti LuPone, uh, who's a very famous Broadway star, like kind of the first lady of Broadway, played Evita on Broadway way back in the day. She plays uh, uh, Brody's mom. Uh, and then you got uh, Baby Newworth, who's also on Cheers and Frasier and all that, as Lois, but is a musical theater star. It's just weird that they both 
were in this one movie for Spike Lee. I don't know if that's just like happenstance or maybe Spike Lee has this secret love of musical theater. I just found that kind of interesting from a casting perspective. Neither part here uh, requires any singing or dancing or anything. There's no real one need them, for it. One I, of them I mean, gets sung too. Does that does that count? No. <laughs> is <laughs> that, that a skill you need in musical theater? Like you're still doing. I mean, sometimes reactionary. Other sing, you know, it's. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dave's really misleading the audience here. The only like uh, oh, theatrical this, is this performance not a musical? he did is no. We doing something else? Adrian Brody strips with a knife yeah. uh, in this uh, these uh, gay clubs. That's but yeah. I, I don't know if uh, he sings at all. I think that's usually portrayed in kind of montage format. Yes. You know what? This actually is a pretty good representation of what you're going to get with the film. It's it is all over the place. <laughs> it, is. it is is a beautiful mess yeah. of mainly um, sexual politics or mm-hmm. sexual hangups that the men have. This actually plays. Very similar to like a Scorsese movie, except Scorsese. I don't think we, he would allow his all of his characters to be as desperate as what's presented here. Because all of our principal characters, there's a an air of desperation to him. Like Adrian Brody's character is the one that is maybe the most put together of this group of friends, but he's also trying on different hats. Like you know, he's not found his authentic self yet. He's a young man who is speaking with a British accent one day, spiking his hair up and has this hidden life for financial reasons. But he, (laughs) for him to be the one that is like giving John Leguizamo the sort of like pointers to life, you know, you're in dangerous territory where he's, he's the reasonable voice in the room on marriage when he really has no attachments. He lives, he's living in his mom's garage, interrupting (laughs) their sex lives when he walks in the front door. It's a rough scene. Um, Yeah. This, yeah, this is far, a far cry from like, you know, if you're a fan of like serial or some bullshit like that, you're going to fucking hate this movie. That's fine. Cause I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. And you brought up that desperation. I mean, you even have Mira Sorvino's character, like, Going to her husband's ex and saying, like, basically, teach me how to fuck my husband so he'll stay. Like, and then you have all these interactions, which I, like, I'm so intrigued by this process where he's kind of like, oh, no, you don't fuck your wife like that. Like, you don't, no, no, you keep the lights off. You don't, you don't do anything crazy. You just do missionary. You just, cause she is pure and she is, she is the one. But then, you know, you go off and, you know, have threesomes and do all this other stuff and then lash out at her. Uh, and that scene, that fight scene might be my favorite scene in the movie. There's a lot going on in that scene because it's not just the vindictiveness and the viciousness of a horrible breakup when the tables are turned, but also like she is maybe leaving him to his death in that scene. Like that's how, <laughs> that's how die, like there is a serial killer haunting these streets and she like leaves them in the woods <laughs> like just fuck you like you know man you have to it. be he realizes yeah. that too yeah yeah but then again um, he's done the same so, thing to her where he's like get out of the car so you can't really feel too bad for him because he was gonna do the same thing look i don't know dave i mean i don't know where you stand uh as far as your own particular sexual quirks or, or hang-ups but like at <laughs> my viewpoint uh, and this is a very different time period, uh, late seventies here. Um, is it Plato's retreat? Is that basically what they're alluding to that it was like, I don't think they say, but like the, the, the sex club were, were, I guess the closest American society got to like orgies being yeah. mainstream ish, yeah. uh, and porn was mainstream ish, uh, at that time. Um, look, if you're freaked out, that's fine. That's, that's probably understandable, especially this character with as much like guilt and shame he carries with like sex acts. But he's like, he would love this character for sure. There's yeah, a lot yeah. of religious uh, guilt. But going he has on. a compulsion to participate in them. But then, you know, is like just <laughs> just like you can tell that it's a very physical performance from like Wazamo that like I, I for me, he would be the best actor of this year of 1999. I, mm-hmm. I think it is it's hard to argue a role that. Well, especially now, since you know Kevin Spacey took home the crown, so let's go with <laughs> let's go with my pick. I'm presenting yeah. you with two options. Yeah, Dave. yeah. Let's go with Legazam. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Let's go that route. But you're you're a guy with sexual hangups 
somehow at the point in the film, you know, your your poor wife who knows you're a cheat uh, is blaming herself for not being uh, sexually aggressive or involved enough or creative enough. Uh, both of you are lured into this this orgy with other people. Both participate. If you're freaked out, that's justifiable, right? Both parties. Yeah, yeah. Like took a walk on the wild side. Just don't give me your bullshit. Don't don't you start in on me. Like you know, just like let's just have this. <laughs> Let's have this quiet discomfort. Let's go back to Pulp Fiction where you just share an uncomfortable silence on, right. well, that was a fucked up night. Right. Uh, so, Dave, I agree with Mr. Servino here. Mm-hmm. You leave the man out into the woods out with a killer prowling because you have crossed a line. I mean, like if we, that we, was we if have... that was the only mistake that Vinny had made, then you're like, OK, that's a little harsh. Like you guys had a rough night. He lashed out a little bit. Maybe don't leave him to die. But the fact that, like, from the moment you've met this character, he's been cheating on this woman and doing terrible things. You're kind of like, yeah, I get it. Well, not only cheating, but putting himself. Like, I mean, that's that's maybe, you know, kind of a cheat. But we're introduced to him cheating on his wife in a car as the killer is like possibly they would have been the next victims. And he knows it. He that's part of his hangups is his compulsion is putting him into very dangerous situations. And then you get into his professional life where he has this physical relationship with his own boss. Well, that comes to a tilt because he just can't this guy. And I've, I don't know about you, but I've, I've actually met people like this that are so sexually charged themselves internally. and want to try everything, but anyone who would participate, it's like the, uh, the old rational marks thing as yeah. far as anyone who would be, and never <laughs> have me I never would be club. a part of a club yeah. that would have me as a member. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, and I've never understood that particular uh, guilt that someone can carry with <laughs> people who participate in sex acts with them. Yeah. That like that as soon as that sex act is over, you think they are disgusting creatures for having physical intercourse with you. Why don't you just say thank you, Jesus Christ. That would be the most simple way to go about your life, but uh, he's a Scorsese character, man. He's yeah. he is he's having a one sided conversation with God, and I think even God would be like, "Where's this happen, time, dude? Man. It's fine. It's, you know, <laughs> it's the seventies. The seventies here happening. in New York. It's fine. I set all this in motion. You're fine. Yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, this was the plan. I think. I think it's a testament to Legazamo's performance that that you don't despise him completely by the end of the movie. Cause like you look back at what he's done. It's not a lot of good stuff here. Like even at the very end, like he betrays his friend at the last second. He's like run, but like, what's that going to do? Like he's ruined his relationships. He's been terrible to even the people he's cheated with. He's been terrible to all his friends. You know, he's betrayed what's supposedly his best friend, the person he's supposed to be looking out for. And yet by the end, you don't despise him like you despise a lot of the things he's done, but you do understand his terror throughout the entire thing. Well, I think- it's because he's pathetic, right? Like you, right. I, I think his reactions as disagreeable as they are, are genuine. Like you understand this is right. a man like most of his neighbors operating purely out of fear, uh, fear and ignorance. And yeah, that unfortunately, uh, sets up like the Brody character to be in a very dangerous situation. Someone who is proudly outside the norm uh, and embracing that aspect of it. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's something we talked about on our, on our podcast 99 from 99 when we covered this film that how stupid do you have to be that you think the guy who is spiking up his hair and wearing the union Jack, uh, you think just goes unrecognizable into the, into the night. Like, right. I think. That's the thing. I was like, you don't think you'd see that guy coming? Like, also, the, I mean, Adrian Brody looks like he's about six foot tall in this movie. Like, you see him. Yeah. You would see him coming down the street. Like, he's noticeable. Yeah. He could be wearing all black. It wouldn't matter. You would see him coming. I, I've I've harped on the true crime people, but I do think that if you're a fan of, uh, you know, something like uh, The Crucible, which there are a number of stories that uh, are about that. Uh, the mob and and people like looking for vigilante justice. I think this is an excellent look at that. Uh, I don't know if I could <laughs> give it to my grandmother who likes the crucible a lot because sure. of the orgies and the sex. Yeah, <laughs> probably probably not. Maybe, not. Uh, but it's about a particular place and time, and um, it's probably strange in the Spike Lee filmography 
because it's not directly about race, mm-hmm. uh, but it's very much about New York City. And uh, mm-hmm. the way it's introduced is like this is a New York story right here. This yeah. is like specific to this city and this time. And I think that Spike Lee has a certain degree of fun with it. But what do you think about Because you've, you've kind of hinted at like the treatment of women here. I was just going to bring that up. I was just going to okay. ask you if you think that this is the movie so far that we've seen with the the best, most well-rounded, most respectable female characters in his. Uh, yes, me too. And I, was, I, I, was, I think he is finally putting the men, uh, almost all of them, on blast here for yeah, all how they see women as just physical objects yep. and uh, just a part of a usually very uh, unsatisfying sexual relationship with the male characters in his films. And it's funny. I don't know that I would have like pinpointed it as watching it, but as we were talking about Mira Sorvino and even I think it's Jennifer Esposito is the other female character. You're like, Mm -hmm. these are the two with the good heads on their shoulders. They're the two that are figuring things out. They're exploring, they're exploring their sexuality in a non damaging, healthy way. You know, if people, if these guys would listen to them, they'd be in a much better situation for the whole movie. And it is an interesting, it's an interesting twist, uh, for Spike Lee to kind of turn all of these on their head. Whereas in the other movies, like the, the people who you're following and the people you're most attached to are all these men. Like some of them are damaged. Some of them are having difficulty, but you never, you never feel like they're fools. When you look at He Got Game, you don't think either of those main male characters are idiots. You're just like, oh, you know, mistakes were made. He, he did some terrible things. He's trying to make up for it. But here, these guys are fucking stupid. All of them. Not just our lead characters. Like, all their buddies. Like, you're just like, all of you should just shut up. Like, stop talking. Like, there's even a sequence where, you know, the one the one out gay character in this movie has a cigarette put out on his hand. And the only response from the other guy is like, he's a paying customer. What's wrong with you? <laughs> like oh that's the issue like okay like there's not a lot of redeemable male characters in this movie it's all the women who are the like even uh maybe newworth you know who is his boss you at least understand where she's coming from you know where it's like what are you doing you can't act like this you can't just come in here and be drunk like get out of here like ever all the guys are fuck-ups yeah, and I was thinking like when you're you're talking about the the one uh the gay character in the neighborhood. It it is strange because I didn't feel like I felt like it was these guys are maybe maybe strangely progressive for that time in the sense that they give him as much shit as they give Adrian Brody for spiking his hair. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it doesn't feel like <laughs> he's definitely getting shit for his sexual orientation, but it's not excessive. Yeah. But I wonder if that's being played with like the that particular sequence it seems like the abuse to all amps up the abuse to anyone who is an outsider to the norm is amped up because this guy is killing couples in the street like there's a strange disconnect as far as how those two things relate to where it's like okay you like punk rock or you're attracted to men there's a serial killer on the loose that has fuck all to do with either of those things but now, now we have to suss out, and like, it, it's it's appalling in the way that you'll see with like walks of life now, where anything bad that happens, you see a lot of conservative voices saying like, well, that happened because we've gone so far astray mm. from like you know classic American values, and it's like, what what does that have to do with classic American values? <laughs> and I, I I like the, I like this film because with the time period it's set in, you know, w- when you get to the eighties. You were getting a return back to like, oh, we, you know what? We allowed people to explore themselves sexually and we, not only that, but we allowed them to do it somewhat openly where even people in middle America were kind of like, huh, there's orgies <laughs> happening in New York City. You can go to, go to that place and that's where the orgies are. Yep. And like, it does feel like we look for any reason to, to pull back, <laughs> like, I mean, and especially living in the Trump years yeah. where it's like any reason to to have us like push back. And so if we make any sort of advancements to allowing people to enjoy their own shit, uh, then and, and what's great about this film is it's the main character who actively wants to be, you know, he, he has that, that whole scene where he's, he's talking about he can't enjoy anal sex uh, with with his wife, even though he wants to have anal sex all the time. <laughs> and you have the Brody character saying like, well, have you ever just like thought about just 
fucking her in the ass maybe just asking her yeah. maybe she's yep. into that too and because his it's a very logical practical viewpoint where it's like uh you know maybe you're not giving your partner enough credit that there's some shit they want to explore maybe right. they think you're a boring vanilla fuck and right. i think that's the thing that the men don't want to confront is that they are boring and they lack imagination it's very uh similar to eyes wide shut as far as the uh-huh. tom cruise character who's like hair is totally blown back that nicole kidman this beautiful woman has never had sexual fantasies yeah exactly outside of him yeah and it's now keep in mind this is not the movie star version this is if that is the cold version you hit it on the head this is the hot sweaty grimy sexual Gross. version whereas yes. eyes wide shut uh you know I, I still believe that stanley kubrick was probably uh very much in line with uh, tom cruise and that he was afraid of sex it was yeah. this distant thing uh that other people did not a lot of sex in kubrick movies so that kind of makes sense like Spike Lee, though, we get it. We just yep. have to feel bad about it after yes. we watch it. Absolutely. Give us a fucking orgy we enjoy. Kubrick and Spike Lee, you know, Spike can beat him because Kubrick's in the grave. Spike Lee, you still have a chance to give us an enjoyable orgy. That's something right. the master never did. But I, am, but I am glad you brought up this idea of the outsider because I think one of the most interesting scenes to me is when they all collectively realize, like, it has to be probably somebody from their neighbor. And I think that's why you get the pushback of like, oh, it must be Adrian Brody's character. It must be the gay guy because, okay, if it's someone from our neighborhood, it has to be a freak. It has to be somebody that wouldn't blend in, you know? So that way you get the best of both worlds, right? It's like, oh, it follows logic that it's someone here, but it's not like really one of us, you know? So that interplay I found really, really interesting that at first. Yeah, because they would be forced to examine themselves. If right. It could be someone like them. Well, shit. You yeah, know, that's, that's that's uncomfortable. But that yeah. guy's got spiky hair. Um, yeah. yeah, I get it in a sad way, but it's like we lost something, America. We lost <laughs> we lost group sex to the yeah. masses uh, because of this fucking guy <laughs> listening to a dog. Jesus, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like it's is that the moral? Yes, <laughs> more group sex. That's that's the moral. <laughs> I, I can go with that. Yeah. So I, you know, it's interesting rewatching it now, like kind of remembering. And understanding how much advertising can affect someone's enjoyment of a movie. Cause like you walk in thinking like, Oh, it's going to be this thing. And then it kind of flips it on its head and you're like, no, it's not really about that at all. Like it's not a B plot. It's not a C plot. This is like a G plot. Like it's just kind of in the background and then everything else is kind of surrounding it. And your big physical standoff is just them getting the wrong guy. Like it's all so useless, you know, all this work that everyone has done in this movie is kind of for nothing. Like they've ended friendships. They've ended marriages because they thought they had the answer. And really it's just some other guy that nobody knew who they, the cops randomly caught. It's just, it's a really interesting way to wrap up this really intense, really energetic movie that like, Oh yeah, all that shit you were doing. You're stupid. You're all stupid. You wasted a whole lot of energy. And that's, you know, that's how Spike Lee ends his movie. It's a really energetic movie ends with like, womp womp, like you guys fucked up. Sorry. Now try to move on with your broken lives. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been two and a half hours of shadow boxing from our, our yeah. main characters here. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to go back to this. But I just now, like, as as you were talking, I was I was looking. I was like, okay, what plot points have we missed? And we didn't miss this one. <laughs> like, you started off, but yeah, your uh, great uh, uh, Mira's uh, sense of smell, as you put it, <laughs> at the the top. Do you know I how wrong? Wikipedia puts it? Oh no, it, it's Al. part of the plot, and it's and it, it caught my eye because uh, a particular phrase here uh, has a uh, hyperlink that you can click on, oh, which no. I will not right now. Uh, when Vinny picks up uh, Deanna back at the club, she notices the smell of vaginal lubrication on his face and realizes he had sex with her cousin. I mean, it's not that wrong. Vaginal lubrication is the hyperlink. Um, oh, so, yes, Jesus mark Christ. That for later, Mike. That's <laughs> no, if you just move your cursor over it, there it is. I love right, how... right next to this. Summer of Sam poster. I love how somehow I was more subtle than Wikipedia. <laughs> I think that's a smell. Vaginal lubrication. I thought I was being crude, but apparently not. All right. Fair enough. 
All right, so uh, we are going to take a break. So, There's no way to transfer on that. that. Note, <laughs> that on we're going to go to our, our experts. We have two experts on vaginal lubrication, and now you will hear them speak. Anyway. Since you've not recorded that yet, Dave, you can ask them directly about it. We are going to take a hey, break. Hey, and, guys, I've got a hyperlink for you to take a look at. Oh you want to come on my podcast? All right, that's enough out of you. We are going to take a break and come back and talk about 25th Hour. I think when you ask people to, you know, rattle off some Spike Lee films, I don't think you're going to get a lot of people that say 25th hour um, because it doesn't look like a Spike Lee joint. Um, the cast doesn't look like a Spike Lee joint. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, he uh, like you said, he didn't write it. But this is definitely one of my new favorites because I I think it's just so well done. Looking at some of the films that he did not write, but he just directed, I think those are kind of better. Um, I guess that's um, that's just the way it is. <laughs> okay, 25th Hour is my favorite Spike Lee film. So 25th Hour is one of my first references for any project that I work on. Even if it like doesn't have any connection to it in any form or fashion, like 25th Hour is always on my reference list. I think Spike as a director was totally in the zone when he made this film. And I, I'm very hard pressed to find any issue with this film. All right, so we're back. Now we're going to talk about 25th Hour starring Edward Norton. I'm just going to full name, not no, no jokes. Edward Norton. Oh, look at that. So Personal growth. That's right. So this is the movie I was talking about in a previous episode that I thought uh, I would rate as better than Malcolm X, which seems like a crazy thing to say. But I love this movie. Um, I think it might be. You like yeah. the one with a predominantly white cast, do you? Yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> Figures. But here we are. Um, also starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, Barry Pepper, Rosario Dawson, Anna Paquin. Kind of a star-studded, mainly white cast. Um, but I, there's something about this movie that I just really, really hook into. Um, it's, it's kind of a hard movie to describe. It, you know, obviously, like it, it references this idea of this is his last, basically the last day of freedom. He's about to go to jail, so it's kind of him trying to wrap up all these loose ends, trying to figure out. Who ratted him out, trying to figure out this little mystery. Also stars uh, Brian Cox, by the way, who I think is really, really good here as Edward Norton's father. Um, and the whitest of the white. That's right. Brian yes. Cox. How yeah. dare you leave him out? I know. Absolutely. So what are your thoughts on this movie? What do you think of 25th Hour? Uh, it's maybe the only good post 9-11 movie. Like, yep. I mean, I know. And references it I know some clearly, have... like doesn't shy away from it. At all, yeah. yeah your uh, your credits sequence is you know the 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 lights uh, that you know in the sort of immediate aftermath um, were sort of the I guess the memorial before the memorial the uh, they had. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say that there have not been. I think there's obviously been films that have been influenced on the culture at large that we live in after nine eleven. But yeah, this one is direct acknowledgement and it's directly a part of the people's lives uh which is interesting because as far as i know i think spike lee was already in pre-production or already close to starring filming so it was definitely not in the original uh, source material um but uh it's it's a pretty graceful acknowledgement of a particular point in time mm -hmm. and strangely really fits with the the themes that we have here this this sort of if I had just done this one thing and this act of regret and uh, a lost future, uh, like a, a deviation from where we expected to be and where we actually are. Um, so I normally would be, you know, very apprehensive over that. Like, Oh, this didn't have any sort of nine 11 influence or references and late in the game. They felt like it would feel like it's something like we have to put in because it's set in New York city. Like, I don't mm -hmm. know if you remember some of the films that, came out where they were racing yeah, like the twin towers, the towers at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, 
This one though, I I did see in its theatrical run, but I'm pretty sure I had to see it like in a dollar movie because I don't think it ever played like in first run theaters. Mm. So I'm seeing it like months and months after like its theatrical run. I was very excited about it because I was a big Edward Norton fan, and I'm like, oh cool, him and Spike Lee. Well, that'll be interesting. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, like always great, always yep. been great. Um, I would say that uh, every time I watch it, I'm always impressed and feel like Barry Pepper gives probably the best performance in this film, which I, I think most people would probably know him from Saving Private Ryan or, I guess, if the joke still stands, uh, Battlefield Earth. I think he was also, the unfortunate hero. Also the star of Crawl. One of the stars of Crawl this year's... Uh, That's true. The Swim Coach. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, but this is um, this is like a, a tighter Spike Lee movie, and it's like you know he he's interested in neighborhoods and communities, uh, but this one uh, is very much after the fact because it's that day in the life ish. Even though there are some flashbacks uh, to Edward Norton's character, his last day, uh, and so you're catching on late to all this sort of, I guess, bitterness that is like masking uh, regret and despair from the characters. Cause everyone is like silently making judgments about their friend they grew up with and like mm-hmm. what he's about to go through because that's their only way of dealing with the fact that he's going to prison and he may be forever changed. Like they are basically losing their friend. It's like a funeral without a death that right. these characters are going through. Uh, so I, I, it's strange. It's like, Spike Lee is like prime for that because to, to be hyper focused on the sort of communal aspect of these people who at this point in their lives necessarily I don't think they would be friends like I don't think you right. glean anything from the way Barry Pepper and Philip Seymour Hoffman have to awkwardly like have drinks together before like they assemble with their buddy like you would never say oh yeah those two those two are buddies growing up right um, it is like a much darker um, more cynical, but still has that warmth that I like about Spike Lee movies. A uh, version of like something I think Richard Linklater would do, but I think it's got a much harder edge than anything I've seen from Linklater, who generally I think favors all of his characters. I think right. he thinks all of them are pretty good guys. <laughs> I don't think Spike Lee thinks any of these guys are particularly good. I think that yeah. he sees them as that they're trying and have tried to be good, but have failed numerous times. And now they're having to deal with the ramifications of it. Yeah. I also, as I was watching this movie, I was trying to remember another Spike Lee movie that had like a monologue like this. Like when you have the scene where Ed Norton's character just lashes out at everyone and everything in the city. Spike Lee's movies usually are much more conversational um, usually don't have this, like, I'm going to stand in front of a mirror and yell and scream and, you know, go through the whole diatribe of everything. And it is really, it's great, but it's really uncomfortable to watch. Me? Fuck you. Fuck you and this whole city and everyone in it. No, 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 no. Fuck you the panhandlers grubbing for money and smiling at me behind my back. Fuck the squeegee men dirty enough to clean windshield of my car. Get a fucking job. Fuck the Sikhs and the Pakistanis bombing down the avenues in decrepit cabs. Curry steaming out their pores, stinking up my day. Terrorists in fucking training. Slow the fuck down! See if I get in one of those operations that elongate your penis. Fuck the Chelsea boys with their waxed chest and pumped up biceps. Going down on each other in my parks and on my piers, jiggling their dicks on my Channel 35. Fuck the Korean grocers with their pyramids of overpriced fruit and their tulips and roses wrapped in plastic. Ten years in the country, still no speaky English. Fuck the Russians in Brighton Beach. Mobster thugs sitting in cafes, sipping tea on little glasses. Sugar cubes between their teeth. Wheeling and dealing and scheming. Go back where you fucking came from. Fuck the black-hatted Hasidim strolling up and down 47th Street in their dirty gabardine with their dandruff selling South African apartheid diamonds. Come on, your wife deserves this. Fuck the Wall Street brokers. Self-styled masters of the universe. Michael Douglas, Gordon Gecko, wannabe motherfuckers figuring out new ways to rob hardworking people blind. Send those Enron assholes to jail for fucking life. You think Bush and Cheney didn't know about that shit? 
Give me a fucking break. Tyco, M-Clone. Fuck the Puerto Ricans, 22 a car, swelling up the welfare rolls, worst fucking parade in the city. And don't even get me started on the dumb in the cans, because they make the Puerto Ricans look good. Who's this fucking guy? Get the fuck out! Fuck the Bensonhurst Italians with their pomaded hair, their nylon warm-up suits, their St. Anthony medallions, swinging their Jason Giambi, Louisville Slugger baseball bat trying to audition for the Supremes. Get the Fuck the Upper East Side wives with their Hermes scarves and their $50 Balducci artichoke. Overfed faces getting pulled and lifted and stretched all taut and shiny. You're not fooling anybody, sweetheart. Taxi! Fuck the Uptown Brothers. They never pass the ball. They don't want to play defense. They take five steps on every layup to the hoop, and then they want to turn around and blame everything on the white man. Slavery ended 137 years ago. Move the fuck on. Fuck the corrupt cops with their anus-violating plungers and their 41 shots standing behind a blue wall of silence. You betray our trust. Fuck the priests who put their hands down some innocent child's pants. Fuck the church that protects them, delivering us into evil. And while you're at it, fuck JC. He got off easy. A day on the cross, a weekend in hell, and all the hallelujahs of the legioned angels for eternity. Try seven years in fucking Otisville, Jay. Fuck Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, and backward-ass, cave-dwelling, fundamentalist assholes everywhere. On the names of innocent thousands murdered, I pray you spend the rest of eternity with your 72 hours roasting in a jet fuel fire in hell. You towel-headed camel jockeys can kiss my royal Irish ass. I notice how many of what I once thought were evidences of repression. Fuck Jacob Belinsky. Sexual or otherwise. Whining malcontent. Fuck Francis Xavier Slattery, my best friend, judging me while he stares at my girlfriend's ass. Fuck Naturel Rivera. I gave her my trust and she stabbed me in the back. Sold me up the river. Fucking bitch. Fuck my father with his endless grief standing behind that bar, sipping on club soda, selling whiskey to firemen and cheering the Bronx bombers. Let's go, Yankees! Fuck this whole city and everyone in it. From the row houses of Astoria to the penthouses on Park Avenue. From the projects in the Bronx to the lofts in Soho. From the tenements in Alphabet City to the brownstones in Park Slope to the split levels in Staten Island. Let an earthquake crumble it. Let the fires rage. Let it burn to fucking ash and then let the waters rise and submerge this whole rat-infested place. threw it away you dumb fuck like just watching this man like scream epithets but as you as you watch it you're like oh this is just anger venting about everything because at first you're like oh i don't know if i'm comfortable with this white guy saying this stuff this is getting but as he goes through the list it's like no no this is just there's nothing more i can do i'm trapped in a corner and fuck everybody because what's the point like, he's seriously considering, I believe, at the beginning of this movie, he's seriously considering killing himself instead of going to jail. I hope people do not uh, stumble across this movie after having seen, like, this YouTube clip, like, this one scene cut up. Because I, <laughs> you know, some scenes can work on their own. It's definitely but... a misrepresentation. Yes, of, yes, very much so. Sure. <clears throat> um it's, I mean, it's a definitely a young man's movie. That's going back to the nine eleven thing too. The assigning of blame and this sort of righteous indignation and anger that everyone felt, and needing to point a finger at somebody, anybody for this pain that you're going through, it really does graft on uh, pretty well here. Um, it's also, I also think, I always forget how strange it is that the movie opens with this guy saving like a wounded dog mm-hmm. who's extremely aggressive and like so the, there's like an extra effort to like pick up this dog off the side of the road um i always forget about that like i did have i was promoting uh, stupidly this podcast uh considering how off the rails you know the first half of our conversation went with, you know 
Uh, we won't go there. It was dirty talk. <laughs> it was about dirty things. Um, but the someone saw the poster because I was like, here's the stuff I've been watching. And they're like, Edward Norton in a dog movie. And I'm like, it is not mm. – <clears throat> this is not the art of racing in the rain. This is not a dog's journey. Like, <laughs> And if you watch the first five minutes, you may think like, oh, cool. It's about rehabbing this this dog. Uh, as much as I like dogs, I find it incredibly depressing that at some point in the film, Norton's character genuinely seems to believe that that is the only good thing, the only good and decent thing he's ever done in his life right. is saving that dog. Um, especially, and we'll, we'll, I want to toss the ball to you. We'll get into, because you had issues with Rosario Dawson and he got game. Uh, this film, one of the like hooks and something that you sit with for a long stretch is this belief that her character here is the one that has betrayed Edward Norton for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So there is no like warmth directed at her. There's warmth to this animal, but the only woman in his life uh, that he's made a home with uh, is seen upon as a turncoat and like sort of reveling in this life without him, or at least he's, he's has that impression of her to a certain point. So is this as good as Summer of Sam as far as calling out our uh, guys, or is it just more shitheads in the way they treat women? I think it's it's a little bit of both. Um, I think, it, you know, I may be reading too much into this, but I do, I did, as I was watching this, feel like this is Spike reckoning with how he's treated women in his movies before. Um, because the one thing I really, really love about the, about this plot line about him, like, oh, it was probably her that, that gave me up. What I love is when he talks to his father and says like, yeah, it wasn't her. And his father's like, yeah, of course it wasn't like, it's obvious that it wasn't. It's obvious that she loves you. Like, why can't you, why can't you let yourself feel that? So I like the fact that it kind of turns his filmography on its head. It kind of points the finger at it. Like I, you know, look at all these women who have been treated so poorly in my movies. And actually like, there's no blame here. There's no fault here. You know, so I kind of, so it is a little bit of both. These guys are being shitheads, pretty much all of them. Uh, Barry Pepper is convinced that she did it too. Uh, and you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman is doing things with younger women that he should not do. So there's a lot going on with poor treatment of women here. Um, what did you think of, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman getting the, and we've not talked about it up to this point, the sort of iconic Spike Lee shot, uh, of this sort of stationary, mm. usually man. Like moving through like a, a moment in his life, um, and he chooses to use that after he makes a pass at a student, and he spent the first like forty five minutes saying, "I could never do that. That would be horrible. That is totally out of bounds," and yet he does it, and that's the moment Spike Lee lets us sit with the next beat is this mouth agape, uh, horrified at himself, Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, yeah, after I, he's come. I love how you refer student. to this as make a pass. Like he did more than make a pass. He kissed his teenage student. That's, he he made his move. So. I've I've seen how uh, Mr. Leguizamo works in Summer of Sam's. So, so this is just you know, the past. Okay. <laughs> given the context of this episode, it could have been far worse. How about yeah, that? That is very true. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting choice because I think he's, I think he's, Spike Lee is taking advantage of the fact that at this point uh, in his career, I think Philip Seymour Hoffman is well loved. Right. He's a an actor that everybody is just kind of like, this is one of our greatest American actors. He's a treasure. He he helped defeat Denzel Washington and uh, give the assist to Al Pacino for Son of a Woman. Yes, absolutely. Well and, known for that. But he also is taking advantage of the fact that he tends to play off kilter characters right through a lot of his career. So it leaves you kind of in the middle here where you're like you want to believe him. You want to believe that he's not going to do anything that he knows it's wrong. Like he keeps pushing back against it. Like, I don't even want her here. And then you realize later, like there's a couple of reasons he doesn't want her here. One, just like it's, it's a weird, awkward situation. And two, he doesn't trust himself. And then when he finally goes past that line, I like the fact that he makes us sit with this because it's not, it's something that I think in a movie like this, where you have this young girl, very pretty dressed, very provocatively, in Hollywood, that's usually seen as like the ideal, right? And he's making you deal with like, oh yeah, that's the ideal. But look, now you have to deal with what you've done here. This is a child. This is not a grown woman. And you have to reckon with that. Because up till that point, 
like between all the friends, like he's the good guy. He's the nice guy. You know, they have that him and Barry Pepper have the discussion about the ratings and all that. He's just like very low on it because he's the nice guy and he doesn't, you know, he's not a workout guy. He's not a, he doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. But now it's like, oh, these, all these men have their faults. And I think it provides this realization of how much they need one another. Like, do they look like they should be friends? Probably not. But they're the only ones who know each other well enough to know their deepest, darkest secrets. Like Barry Pepper's character, Frank, deep down, he knows that Jacob is going to do this. Like, he's not fooled at all by this whole, like, well, I have this co-worker, blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, right. Like, he gets it. They know each other. And there's a there's an extra sense of camaraderie and connection when you know your friend's deepest, darkest secrets. The things they would never tell anyone else. Which is why when the movie kind of closes with, you know, forcing one of his friends to beat the shit out of him, you can only, in a situation like that, you can only ask the people who know the deepest, darkest secrets about each other to do something like that. Because this is not your standard, do me one favor. Like, this is like, I, I did. beat my face into meat by the end of this. Like, it's, it's a lot. Look, it's not as dramatically satisfying, but I did wonder if, uh, I, I'm sure the... Uh, Ukrainian Russian mob that he's uh, hooked up with would do him that solid. You know, there is a the Simpsons goon squad who would be like, yes. okay, <laughs> they may not, uh, you know, stop when you want them to. I, I don't know, or maybe they'd be too professional about it. There'd maybe. be no passion. Exactly. There, there's a, that's getting into the weeds because I mean Norton is playing a character who he wants to be punished. Like, and that's like, there is something to him where he has a scene with Barry Pepper where he talks about he got a little too greedy. And it's like six months prior, he had thought, thought about stopping as far mm-hmm. as selling drugs. And he was going to like get his you know financial friend to like, you know, set him up, make him legitimate in some way. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I do wonder if that's the, there's actual truth to that or that character. Like, cause it seems like he has since high school made a life in dealing drugs and he's got the Cool Hand Luke poster behind him, which I love. He has created an aura of himself as like sort of wanting to like live on the edge. And so I just – I kind of doubt him in that moment. I do like that Barry Pepper says, look, you can't like go round and round in your head like this. Like you can't – like the what if factor uh, of it all. Um, this also has one of my favorite uh, bits of dialogue uh, where when they're looking over Ground Zero, which Barry Pepper's character is – He's invested in like, and he talks about like he's like I'm I'm. There's no way I can back out. I'm not moving because I'm too like financially invested in living here. Even though it's no longer the like the thing that I thought I was getting. Like I'm now living, literally next to tragedy and a reminder of loss and tragedy every day. Um, <laughs> yeah, just Philip Seymour Hoffman character saying that the the times, as uh, I think the times has said like you know the air is not even like breathable down here like you shouldn't be here it's not good for your health and Perry pepper says well fuck the times i read the post like you know he is he is able to like to sort of move between like the truth there and pick and choose um he, he's a good friend though because he, he tells he reminds uh, monty here like you, know, you can't think like that and he also feels comfortable playing the heel like you said he's he's sort of comfortable not accepting jacob's like bullshit about this this student and this friend, and he's the one that confronts uh, the Rosario Dawson character as well. Like seemingly of his own accord. Like I, I can I can play the bad cop for my friend and ask the questions that yeah, he clearly would. are like racking his mind. Yeah, uh, and he knows he's gonna get you know that may end that relationship with her that sort of side friendship, and he you know, I mean he gets slapped in the face, but it's like none of this is a surprise to him. At yeah. all, I don't even think like it's a surprise to him what he is capable of doing to his friend. Like I do think that there's like legitimate like he is taking out some of his anger and his sorrow and this sense of betrayal of his friend that he's okay. he's losing him. He's losing him to prison because he he's the one that says like once he's gone he's gone. He's like he may get out. out but he's never gonna... yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. I I don't know. There's usually I would dislike this type of plot line. I would not like this sort of particular martyrdom from a drug peddler like because I, I don't know anything about the norton character i don't think he's evil like based on how he carries himself but you know that, that's a hard sell for me as far as like well you profited off other people's pain mm-hmm. you got caught 
you're going to do some prison time. It's not a life sentence or anything. Uh, but the way Norton plays it, the way Spike Lee makes it, the sort of like look at male friendship, uh, it, it really works for me. Like yeah. I, I know I, I would probably have been one of the people who read the source material. I'm I'm just making a judgment <laughs> on it sight unseen, and been like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if that's like a movie I'd want to watch. Right. Uh, this is one I revisit quite a bit, and this one's a heavy sit yet again, Dave. Mm-hmm. A very heavy sit you have here. Yes. Uh, but it is. I, I like movies about male friendships because, like what you said, like <laughs> going back to Jungle Fever, there are things that can be said. I guess between right. men that are sort of reprehensible, but accepted because like deep down, it's like, I don't know. It's like, we all, we all think our male friends are kind of just as scummy as us. Like right. there's a reason we've bonded. So right. any, any of my own flaws, I expect to be reflected back at me <laughs> yeah. from the people I've surrounded myself with. Yeah. There's a, there's a couple things based on what you've been talking about that occurred to me. One is I think, you know, you mentioning the idea that like, you know, we don't really know anything about Ed Norton's character. Like, why should I care? Why should I like this guy? I do partially, partially I hate this movie because of it, but I think this is why that scene with the dog exists. Because it immediately is like, that's a good guy. That guy put himself at risk for a dog. Immediately, I have a connection to him. There's a warmth there automatically. So it's a little, it's a little, it's a little underhanded by, by the script or by Spike Lee, whoever made that choice, but it works on me a hundred percent because I'm like, okay, not only did you save a dog, you save a dog that everyone else would have wanted to kill a dog that bit you. You're willing to put your life on the line for the dog. Okay, fine. We get it. Um, it's like, all, like a little love tap that he gets from the dog yeah, like, it's like, to the, to the throat almost. It's to yeah, the neck. So it's a wound. I don't know. It's not just a yeah. scratch. The other thing that came to mind is the reason I really like the Barry Pepper character here is when he's, when he's talking to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character about Ed Norton, he's just like, basically like, he's dead. Give it up. Doesn't matter. Give him one good night. He's done after this. But then when Edward Norton comes to him and is talking to him about his worries, he steps up as a friend and he calms him down and he tries to help him. And because you're expecting him to go like, well, yep, this is it. You know, let's have another drink because things are going to get real bad. Or to keep trying to put people in between them because it seems right. like he's comfortable. If there's female companionship or strangers, he just wants a barrier so that he doesn't right. have to have this sort of intimate conversation with yeah. his friend. But instead he becomes a caretaker in that scene, <laughs> which seems out of character for that man. But because that friendship exists and you see how much he cares about him, even if he's not willing to say it out loud, it actually works. And I think you're right. I, I love Ed Norton. I think he's really good here. He's a great lead, but I do think Barry Pepper gives easily the most layered performance here. There's a lot more going on with him than I think anyone else in the movie. There's a lot more depth to it. And it's, he's an actor that I kind of wish had gotten more, more leads, more lead roles. Cause I think he's kind of always really good. He's always dependable, but he does have that kind of like character actor style, his speech. You know, the the way his body looks, the way his face looks, he looks like a character actor. So I think he gets relegated to that. But I think he's a character that immediately in this movie kind of draws you in. And even when he's saying reprehensible things, you kind of want to learn more about him despite that. He was really good. Uh, Did you ever see – you're a a baseball guy, 61. I think the Billy Crystal like TV movie uh, as uh, Roger Maris. It's a very different role. Like, you know, he's playing like – Captain America, basically very straight right. lace, but like <laughs> just a guy like just riddled with an anxiety, like this, this great, you know, athletic superstar. Uh, so he's had some different stuff. Uh, true grit, <laughs> like barely recognizable oh, in the yeah, Coen brothers. Right. True yeah, grit. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, you're right. I mean, he is, it seems like, uh, you know, he's got an odd look, not like he's unattractive. No, just like he, he's. Like he's seen some stuff, you know, like not scarred, but like he's weathered, I guess is the the right. Probably, term. probably just too much baggage on his face to ever be like a true right. movie star. Like right. always going to be some degree of character actor. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, we're, we're very positive on this one. Uh, if you look at the top of the Wikipedia, it says several critics uh, named it one of the best films of its decade. So from the early 2000s. Um, and Roger Ebert put I, in his list of great movies, so we know Roger Ebert is a fan too. 
so good company. But this one does stick out, like, and and I guess it's something we're gonna see, like, going into the next episode with Inside Man, where it does feel like, as much as I love the sort of uh, messy nature of something like Summer of Sam, or some of the the little touches of, uh, you know. Um, uncomfortable maybe moments like i i know in he got game that was one of the criticisms i read where it's like if spike lee could just cut some of the shit you know he would have he would have this clean movie and that's the stuff i don't want him to cut i don't want it to be a clean experience i do feel like 25th hour though for the most part feels like very tight kind of sparse and clean uh and we're gonna see that also with inside man so uh, do you think this is some sort of like is this some sort of turn like for fans of Spike Lee where this is always going to be seen as an outlier or maybe like a change of pace thing? Yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of it comes from the fact that he didn't write it, which isn't his voice. Like this is, I think, uh, I think actually the guys who uh, were the showrunners of Game of Thrones actually wrote this movie, uh, Benioff and White. Oh, great. Thank you for just welcoming hate to our podcast, Dave. I didn't really need to know that. Yeah, half of it. David Benioff is the one who wrote. I guess it's a novel and a screenplay. Um, And I think that's why, I mean, just kind of spoilers for our next episode, but there's no way this is Spike Lee's masterpiece, right? This does not read as a Spike Lee movie to me. Like, it's really well directed. It's really well acted. But it doesn't have necessarily that energy that most Spike Lee movies have. You know, it has the... The Spike Lee moment, like you mentioned, with Philip Seymour Hoffman, so you know, okay, this is definitely a Spike Lee movie, but it definitely does stand out. Um, and I think it stands out even from, uh, even more than like Inside Man does. Uh, we'll talk about it in the next episode, but Inside Man feels like Spike Lee does genre, but it still feels like a Spike Lee movie. Whereas this definitely stands apart in some good ways and some bad ways. Like part of me wishes this movie was just a tiny bit messier. You know, and it did feel like his voice a little bit more like it even like for a movie that could be seen as really cynical. It kind of ends with like a like a walking fantasy, you know, with uh, Brian Cox, his father, kind of telling him how he could maybe just go on the run and start a family and move on with his life. It's a really interesting, positive outlook at the end of a very dark, very cynical film. It is much different than the uh, the fantasy the father has at the end of Jungle Fever, and I I love both <laughs> both the nightmare yes. and I guess the escapist dream scenario. And my letterbox review, I, I compared it to uh, uh, you know much I guess more grounded uh, version of a scene from like Big Fish, uh, where the mm-hmm. father is like, mm-hmm. let me let me tell you a story. Except it's not about his life; it's about his son's, like what it could be. Yeah. Um, it is uh it is some of I think Brian Cox's best work. I mean this is his character is mentioned as you know being a recovering alcoholic and there's obviously some distance uh that Monty has with his father. They're not like it's not like they're that's his best friend is his dad. Right. Uh, but you can feel that sort of yearning for that that sort of missed opportunity and misconnection that the father has where he wasn't there for his son and right. maybe share some of his own guilt about how things have ended up because of it. Uh, that is a great uh, final sequence. I, I like, I love the movie so much leading up to it, but I'm always like itching to get to that, like father son car moment with that. Uh, I guess I'm in Spike Lee's headspace where I'm like wanting to push the woman away. Like, no, let's hang out with the boys. Let's get to the father. Uh, Rosario Dawson, you're off the hook. I guess it wasn't you. It was the big Ukrainian guy. But uh, yeah. you know, now now it's time Tony for more Siragusa, man talk. Ex NFL star in that role. So <laughs> it's an interesting. It's a very character. large man. It's a big boy. A large yeah. man. <laughs> That's there's your opportunity. Like last time, not the last time on the podcast because you'll bring him up. You'll bring up how tiny Edward Norton is in comparison to Edward Norton. He makes Edward Norton look like a sprite. In comparison, so is that good enough? That for was you? strangely nice. You're you're just you know I'm just giving you opportunities no, to be, just punch yourself be, out. No, it's got to be unexpected. It's got to like take you by surprise. What are you like a cat? So you, you have like, to like re- just have this like side swipe. Yeah, and just out of nowhere. I want you to attack. like reel from it. Like just oh god, we were this movie doesn't even have Edward Norton. Why are we talking about him right now? Nope. We would have the worst uh, podcast training sequences where I'm like, all right, Dave, you know, this is the time. Take your shot. And you're like, yeah. no, no, I'm not feeling it. I've got to be, you know, 
It's got to be totally instinctual. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Don't I don't need you to like throw me some softballs. I I got this. When I want to be mean to Edward Norton, I will be in my due time. But in Twenty Fifth Hour, very good performance. Great. He's not tiny. It's good. Good job, Ed. Well done. Is that good enough? All right. So that is the end of this episode. He's not uh, tiny. <laughs> On our next episode, we will be covering our final Spike Lee movies, Inside Man and Black Klansman. Uh, and what are we, do you remember like what we're skipping? There's some, there's some stuff in between. She Hate Me. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. what else? Um, I guess before Inside Man, really the only big one is, is She Hate Me, which I never saw. That one I skipped. Um, but in between Inside Man and Black Klansman, there's a lot of stuff. Did, wasn't he, didn't he do an old boy uh, remake that was pretty much pain? Oh, did he? He did. Well, why don't you throw that out to the internet and see what they say? <laughs> they might <laughs> have there something an old to say. boy remake? Yeah, I yeah. seem to remember something about that. And then a movie called The Sweet Blood of Jesus, um, which I still that was have the not seen. Kickstarter project uh, that I believe Steven Soderbergh uh, invested in. Um, yeah. And yes, I've also not seen that one uh, as well. Oh, and then Chirac. I don't know if that one's on Amazon Prime. The other big one's Chirac. Yeah, he's he has uh, yeah some Amazon, I guess, originals or ones that they funded as well. Uh, but now he'll be going to Netflix, I think. I think he has some agreement to produce that's, some stuff that's for them. where the auteurs go, Mike. It's to Netflix. That's the only space for them. So. This is incredibly depressing. Yep. I sure. need to retreat back to the vag- vaginal secretions <laughs> of Summer of Sam. <laughs> Lubrication was the word. Get it right. All right. So Do you have that. You still have the tab open, don't you? You dirty bastard. No comment. All right. So that's it for this Chasey episode. Lane's filmography. <laughs> oh, you remembered. Um, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it is at directed by pod or donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash a podcast directed. Thank <laughs> you.